thank you so much. If you would turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Over the last year or so, we've been kind of alternating between different books of the Bible like Acts and 1 Corinthians, uh, Revelation. We've talked about happiness. So it's kind of different series that we've been doing. And what I'd like to do is, over the next um, two or three Sundays, I'd like to wrap up this series that we've started and touched on over the last year on happiness, and then wrap up the series on Roman, uh, Revelation, then 1 Corinthians, and then Acts. So we're going to actually stick to um, one topic or one book and wrap those up as we complete our, our year this year. And so what I'd like to talk about this morning is the matter of being holy and happy. And to think about it in terms of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is considered the Mount Everest of the Bible. Uh, Romans is considered the Himalayas, uh, the uh, greatest mountain range that you'll find, so to speak, in the Bible. And Romans 8 is the highest peak in that mountain range. It contains some uh, wonderful and profound truth. And so what I'd like to do, we'll touch on the whole chapter in various ways, but I'd like to especially read verses 9 and following as we begin this morning to talk about being holy and being happy. And so Romans 8, verse 9, uh, Paul is in the midst of talking about life in the Spirit and the Christian life um, lived by the Spirit of God. And he says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies." Through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those, excuse me, all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. May God bless his word. Let me begin by just asking a few questions for us to think about, things we've touched on in various ways. First of all, what is one thing that all of us in this room have in common? Now, there are different ways we could answer that question. We all uh, have bodies and, and things like that. But one thing that's very important for us to realize is we all have the same desire, And that fundamental desire is to be truly happy. We've been wired by God to pursue our happiness. And therefore, 
Uh, we have men like Blaise Pascal who would say, no matter what men do, one way or the other, they are pursuing their happiness. It may be by the pursuit of pleasure, or it may be through the prevention of pain. But one way or the other, every person, through every decision they make, even when they choose to sin, they are pursuing their happiness. And so it's really important to think about that because the Bible in various ways encourages us to pursue our happiness, but to do it in the right way, and the only way that it can be found. And that's why uh, we should look at the word joy in the Bible, which is more often found than the word happy, depending on the translation. But joy is simply happiness in God, which means I can have joy in any situation, regardless of my circumstances, because my happiness is not found in my circumstances per se, it's found in God who rules over my circumstances. And so all of us here this morning are pursuing our happiness. We want to be happy. We want to have a peace in every situation. We want the good that will satisfy our souls. All of us, regardless of where we are spiritually or financially or family-wise or otherwise, we're all pursuing the same thing. The second question is, what, what do we want, what do we all want for those we love? Well, if we really love them, we want them to be happy. That's true, because I've heard people say to their children, I just want you to be happy. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm encouraging you to do what I'm encouraging you to do, because I really want you to be truly happy. Now, that's important to think about because when the Bible says God is love, what does that mean? Does God is love mean that he can love me and not care whether or not I'm happy as long as I'm holy? There are people who have said historically, God doesn't care about you being happy. He wants you to be holy. Well, is it love when you really don't care about a person's happiness? It's not. And the Bible doesn't support the idea that God doesn't care whether or not you're happy. He just wants you to be holy. Those two things go together. The most happy being in the universe is God. As Spurgeon said, he's infinitely happy. And therefore, he wants his creatures to be happy too because that's what a loving person does. If you love your children, you want them to be truly happy. And so we have to be careful of thinking that somehow this talk about love doesn't have anything to do with happiness because it has everything to do with happiness. And whether or not you love someone is closely related to whether or not you really want them to be happy and what you think it means for them to be happy and how you understand how happiness is actually pursued and received. The third question is, what do you think will make you truly happy. This is a fill-in-the-blank exercise. For you personally, fill-in-the-blank. I would be truly happy if blank. Only you can answer that question. God knows how you answer it or would answer that question. The question is, how would you answer that question? I would be truly happy. I believe I would be truly happy if blank. Well, depending on how we answer the question, 
it will reveal how well we understand what true happiness looks like and how it's received. But it's very important to understand that the Bible is very much about happiness because it's about a good God. God revealed himself to Moses and he said, I will let I will show you my goodness. Goodness is something that is meant to satisfy. It's meant to bring happiness. That's what goodness does. And God is a good, good God. And when you experience something good, it does bring you happiness. And that's why we praise good things. Whether it's a good meal or a good movie or whatever it may be, the goodness we receive brings praise because it brings us blessing, satisfaction, happiness in some sense. But the ultimate happiness is found in God. And so what I want to talk about is what that looks like for us. Um, At the beginning of the year, we talked about the fact that God calls us to pursue happiness. And how does he do that? He calls us to trust Christ. Uh, You might remember I uh, talked about Augustine, who's one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, who said, if you have trusted Christ, let me tell you why you did that. For the sake of happiness, he said. Nobody follows Christ to be miserable. Nobody follows Christ out of just duty. If you truly follow Christ, you see his goodness, you see his beauty, and you realize that he's the key to true happiness. Nobody follows Christ to be miserable. And so we need to realize that Following Christ is very much about how we reflect our Christ to the world. Do we reflect to the world that we follow Christ because there's no one better, someone, no one greater, there's no one that can satisfy me like Christ. Only Christ satisfies. The second thing we talked about was uh, earlier on in the series is that, as I mentioned before, one way or the other we are pursuing our happiness. The question is, how are we doing that? If I were to ask you another fill-in-the-blank question, how are you pursuing your happiness? I'm pursuing my happiness blank. This is how I'm doing it. I'm pursuing it through my job. I'm doing it, pursuing it through my family. I'm pursuing it through my entertainment. I'm pursuing it through what? Or would we say I'm pursuing it through my faith, in God and my obedience to God. Is that what we would say? If not, then we need to think more about happiness because that's so important. That's, that's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question, which is considered one of the greatest catechisms ever written, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? And it, the answer is to glorify and enjoy God. What does that mean? To glorify God is to be like him, is to be holy. To enjoy God is to be happy. It's a call to be holy and to be happy, to glorify and enjoy. And those two things go together. They aren't two different things. They are, the, they are different sides of the same coin. And so we're pursuing our happiness. The question is, how are we doing that? Then we talked about the fact that The Bible is our only guide, our only reliable guide for that. And that's why on the wall of the children's Sunday school, uh, we have this statement, this is my Bible. 
It is God's word. It is true. It is enough. It tells me about God and me and what Jesus did for us and God's promises to us and how to love. By God's grace, I will trust it and I will obey it so I can be happy in God. And so someone has said um, about this, the, the reality that kids grow up in the church and then they walk away. And some would say part of the problem is the idea that the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of God are two different things. And so if they're two different things and we're wired to pursue our happiness, then you walk away from God. You walk away from the church. So as parents, we want to convey to our kids, we're not telling you to be happy, unhappy. We're telling you that the only way you can pursue your happiness and truly be happy is in God through Jesus. That that is the only way. That every other way is just a path that leads off a cliff. It's an illusion. It's not true. It's not really something that's ever going to satisfy. And so when we come to Romans chapter 8, if it is indeed the pinnacle of the Bible, and if the Bible really does argue in various ways that we are to pursue our happiness in God, then it must have something really important to say about what that looks like. What does it look like to do just that? And so that's why I want to spend some time in Romans chapter 8, um, because I think it will help us think about what that looks like. Um, there's a reason why I've taken the time to talk about happiness. And I think Spurgeon kind of expresses it well when he says, he preached a sermon out of uh, Deuteronomy 22. And uh, the title of the sermon was, Happiness, the Privilege and Duty of Christians. Okay, so that's his title. And he says in that message, What a blessed task is mine to urge my brethren to be happy. How highly favored are you to be exhorted to so delicious a privilege. When happiness becomes a duty, who will not be glad? What a blessed people are they to whom to be delighted is but to obey the divine command. To whom rejoicing in the Lord is an obligation as well as a privilege. So Spurgeon would say, it's my privilege as your pastor, your, the preacher, to urge you to be happy. To really think hard about what it means to be happy and where you're looking for happiness. And to acknowledge the fact that the good God who created us, created us to be holy and happy. And those two things go together. All the talk that we've had recently about uh, who we are in Christ and how it relates to what we do is very much about the, the issue of happiness because God has done what he's done in us as Christians that we might enjoy him, that we might know him better and actually find greater happiness in him. And so at the bottom of the screen there and on your notes, Spurgeon also says, holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. That's why I read the passage that I read out of Romans. 
Because in that passage, it talks about the fact that by the Spirit, we are put to death sin. And so Spurgeon says the way to happiness is through holiness. And holiness means the death of sin. We have to, as Christians, put to death sin in our lives. One of the things that I've come to think about a lot lately is the issue of repentance. And and Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, the first one said that the Christian life is a life of repentance. And what is repentance? Well, repentance is when you have a change of mind about God and a change of mind about sin. So that you go from thinking that sin is my friend and God is my enemy. I repent when I have a change of mind by God's grace and I begin to see that sin is my enemy and God is my friend. It's a total flip. And so the way I pursue my happiness is that I begin to realize that sin does not make people happy. It might bring some pleasure that's temporary, but it does not bring true happiness. And so um, when we talk about holiness bringing us happiness, we need to understand that holiness isn't what I was taught when I was growing up. When I was growing up, I was taught that holiness means not doing things. Means like not watching certain movies, uh, not going certain places, not drinking certain things, not doing certain things when you're on a date, etc., etc., etc. It's not doing things. That's what I was told. That's what I was taught. That holiness is all about not doing things. And people look at that, especially young people look at that and think, well, if that's all Christianity is about not doing things, I'm not sure that is the way to happiness. Well, the Bible defines it differently in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, if you look at that section 11 through 13 in 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. And he says, So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. What does it mean to be holy? It means to love like God loves. It's not about not doing things. It may be about not doing things, but not, it's not simply about not doing things. It's about doing things. It's about loving God and loving people in the way that God loves people. It's a very positive thing. It's about revealing the beauty of Christ by our lives and how we love people. And so holiness is a very, very positive thing, not just a negative thing. And so I want to basically what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the three things that Paul does in Romans 8 that I think are crucial to our pursuit of happiness. One is to understand that in Christ there's no condemnation. There's no separation, meaning from God's love. There's also no complacency with regard to sin. And we want to talk about the fact that when he says we are to put to death sin, we need to know what that looks like. How do we do that? And we're going to talk about feeding on the truth, fixing our hope on God, and fighting sin by saying no.
and exactly what that looks like and what that means. And so the first thing I just want to highlight is is to draw your attention to the very first um, thing that Paul says in Romans 8. If you look again at verse 1 of Romans 8, he says at the very beginning of Romans 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means that's the starting point for pursuing your happiness and pursuing holiness is to understand that your acceptance with God is not based on your performance. Your acceptance with God is because of Jesus. You're forgiven. The only kind of sin you can fight is forgiven sin. The only person that can truly pursue their happiness is someone who's been reconciled to the only one who can give them happiness, which is God. And so all that Paul has set up to this point about Jesus living the life we could never live, dying the death we deserve to die, rising from the dead, and all those who entrust themselves to him are not condemned, which means we're not defined by our sin. A huge thing for all of us that keeps us from really enjoying greater happiness is how we handle our guilt, what we do with our sin, what we think about the sins we've committed what we think about the sins that are going to happen today, what we think about the sins that will happen years from now. One of the things that's interesting to me is that um, you've got David, King David in the Old Testament. I'm reading about David right now in my daily Bible readings. And you read about David, and it's amazing to me how imperfect he was. In all kinds of situations, you find David as Miss Virgie would say, telling stories. He's lying. Uh, And maybe sometimes you could say, well, that lie was justified under certain situations. Otherwise, other times you might wonder, I'm not so sure if that lie was justified or not. But he, he doesn't always tell the truth. But the biggest thing about David is that when we get to 1 Samuel 11, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and he has her husband murdered. And yet the Bible says that God chose David to replace Saul because it says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And then it says in Acts 13, 22, he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified, speaking of God, testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, is that true or not? Was was David a man after God's own heart or not? He committed adultery. He committed murder. But he was a man after God's own heart. How does that fit in with anything that we tend to believe? Well, Paul said back in Romans 7 that he still sinned, but it was not him. It wasn't the true him. Like Rosaria Butterfield said, when we sin as Christians, as believers, as true believers, we sin against our true nature. We don't sin in line with our true nature. David's true nature was a man after God's own heart. That's the reality of every true believer. We have been been given a new heart. 
Ezekiel says. And we have a heart that's after God, that heart, a heart that really wants to please God. But do we still sin? Yes. And can true Christians sin in really horrible ways? Yes. But it is contrary to who they truly are. It doesn't mean we should be unconcerned about our sin. It just means we should not let our sin define us. We're defined by our relationship to Christ or our lack of relationship to Christ. We're defined by being reconciled to God or our lack of being reconciled to God. Another interesting person in the Bible to me is Judas. You think about Judas, who was one of the twelve. The Bible emphasizes in the Gospels that Judas was one of the twelve. Now, what does that mean when it emphasizes, when it talks about Judas as being one of the twelve? He was one of the ones that that God commissioned through Jesus, obviously, or Jesus commissioned to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel. And he did all those things. How do we know he did all those things? Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he said, one of you is going to betray me, they looked around and said, who's he talking about? They didn't say, it must be Judas because he can't cast out a single devil. He's never healed a single person and he can't preach worth anything. They didn't say that. They looked around and said, we have no idea who Jesus is talking about because we're we're all the same. We've done all the same things. We've cast out demons. We've healed. We've preached. And Judas looked like just every other member of the twelve. And yet the Bible says, Jesus says in his great uh, high priestly prayer that he was the son of perdition. He was the one doomed to destruction. Meaning that he was not someone who had a heart after God. His heart was a heart that was after sin and himself and Satan. His heart was not like David's heart. David sinned in gross ways. Judas served what could be thought of as in great ways. And yet the fundamental issue was who has the heart after God's own heart And who is the son of perdition? Whose heart is radically different? So my point is, in general, we have to be careful of just looking at what we do or what other people do and just assume that what we do in and of itself defines us or what we don't do defines us. We have to go below that. We have to ask, is my heart, is their heart toward God or not? Is it after God? Does it trust God love God, want what God wants. And so for us as Christians, as believers, we need to believe that what truly defines us is the new heart that God has given us, a heart that trusts in Christ, that wants to live to please God, even though we fail over and over in so many different ways. But we really want to, and we grieve that we're not better than we are as husbands, and fathers, as mothers, and wives, as children, as workers, or whatever it may be, we grieve that we don't love like we should. But we want to, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we do have a heart to please God. And so whether or not we're able to 
to embrace the idea that there's no condemnation for me, even on my worst day, whether or not we're able to embrace that or not, will affect whether or not we will be happier in God or not. It makes a difference. If I'm, if I'm like um, Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, who basically said he was describing his own experience as a Christian, that he had this weight on his back. And it wasn't until he dropped the weight at the foot of the cross, which doesn't appear to be when he became saved, it was when he began to truly understand that he was forgiven, that he realized there was no condemnation. There's a weight that we carry, that we can carry as Christians, that will rob us of happiness because we have the weight of guilt that has not been released from us. And that's why the gospel of what Christ has done for us is so very, very important. And that's why I emphasize that as Christians, we don't want to let our sin define us. We don't want to let guilt rule our hearts or we won't find greater happiness in God. The second thing is the issue of no separation. So at the beginning of the chapter, Paul starts with no condemnation. At the end of the chapter, he concludes with no separation. And so at the very end, he says, For I am convinced that neither death, this is verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The second thing that is going to affect our happiness in this life is whether or not we believe that God loves us no matter what we're going through, which means we cannot let our suffering define us. And so that's why it says earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about the fact in verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So he says we can exult in our tribulations. Why? Because we know God loves us. That's essentially what he says He says there, that God's up to our good through the tribulation. He's, he's growing us through it. And it is not a denial of his love for us. So another story in the Bible that's really fascinating to me is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you may remember that story out of Luke chapter 16, where you got this rich man who lives lavishly, enjoys all the finest things in life. And then you've got this poor man who's sitting at his gate. And he's got sores all over him, and, and the uh, dogs are licking his sores. And the Bible says, Jesus tells the story, and he says, uh, Lazarus dies, and he goes into the bosom of Abraham, which means basically he goes to heaven. Uh, the rich man dies and goes to hell. Now, why is that story significant? Because every Jewish person would have totally reversed that at that time. They believe that the way you know whether or not God is favoring you is whether or not you have his blessing, his material blessing. So if you're a rich man, 
There must be something about you that that God favors. And therefore, the rich were more likely to go to heaven than the poor from their perspective. But if you're a poor man, then that must mean you've got some really strong, big sin problems and you're suffering for your sin and God must not be in favor of you. And so Jesus tells that story and you can bet every jaw was dropped as they listened to what Jesus had to say because that totally turned everything around for them. And as you know, as the story goes, the rich man looks up in Hades and he sees Lazarus and Abraham and he asks for help. And Abraham says, "Um, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. This is what theologians will call the different stories in the Bible uh, great reversals. That we tend to think that certain things indicate God's favor and certain things indicate God's curse. But on Judgment Day, we will find that there will be great reversals. That it won't be the way we think. And obviously, the one point of the story, there's many things about the story, but one point of the story is our suffering doesn't define us, nor does our prosperity define us. In general, just because I'm a, you know, a member of the greatest nation that's ever been on the planet, America is a rich, rich nation, doesn't mean I'm part of the new Israel and part of the chosen people of God or anything like that. Doesn't mean that just because I'm wealthier than other people, that God favors me and I'm okay with God. But on the other hand, as believers, we need to understand, and this is the main point at the end of Romans 8, is that you may find yourself slaughtered, killed, tortured, hungry, persecuted. But it does not mean that God doesn't love you. But that's exactly what they thought about Jesus. I mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before. If you remember on the cross, they're mocking Jesus and they say, well, if God really delights in him, let him come down off the cross. They, they just could not believe that someone could suffer like that and that God would delight in them, that he could truly be the son of God and suffer like that. That's the way we all are naturally. We don't believe that God allows those he loves to truly suffer like that. We believe they must be being cursed. That's the whole point of Job. Remember, at the beginning of Job, God says to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. That means Job was the best man on the planet at the time. And he suffered greatly. He lost his family, he lost all his possessions, he lost his friends. And what did his comforters say? Job, it's obvious that um, you've sinned greatly against God because you're suffering greatly. And you must be a great sinner to suffer greatly like you are. They were defining him by his suffering. And their counsel was, repent, repent, repent. You're, you're obviously a great sinner. You're obviously under God's curse. But you could be 
different. It could change if you would just repent. And Job would say, I don't have anything to repent of in the sense that you're talking about. And so there's a reason why we have a whole book in the Bible that talks about how easy it is to misunderstand what is happening in the lives of believers. Because it's very easy for us to think that maybe God isn't loving me under my circumstances. When the reality is there's nothing, no suffering that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, which means for every person who has turned from their sin and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, therefore you are now in Christ and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God because that's all there is in Christ. That's all there is in union with Christ is God's perfect love, no matter what you might go through. Well, let me come to this last point for today, and that's the issue of no complacency. In the very middle of this chapter, on the one end, you've got no condemnation. On the other end, you've got no separation. But in the middle, he talks about no complacency. What I mean by no complacency is there's no contentment with sin. Uh, I'm not going to be okay with sin, even though I'm not condemned, and even though nothing can separate me from the love of God. Um, I should not conclude that I can live like I want to. That makes no sense um, for a number of different reasons. For instance, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, No sin has ever made any person happy. Sin simply cannot bring happiness but it can deliver pleasure. And we, when we confuse pleasure with happiness, we are wide open to the seduction of the enemy. So if I've been reconciled to God that I might enjoy God, find my happiness in God, why would I live to sin? doesn't make any sense. And that's why Paul could say in verse 12 of Romans 8, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And so he's saying there is no condemnation in Christ, there is no separation from God's love, but there's no complacency with sin. We don't look at sin and say, ah, that sin's no big deal. In fact, I think I might be happier if I just indulge that sin. The reality is we won't be. We might be temporarily more, um, find pleasure in it, but ultimately it will bring death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Um, it's interesting to me, if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you've got um, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. And the Bible says God received Abel's offering, but did not have regard for Cain's offering. And it tells us that Cain was not happy about that. Cain was angry about that. And the Lord very graciously comes to Cain. And he says, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
and its desires for you, but you must master it. And then it goes on to say, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Paul could say earlier in Romans chapter 11 that what sin does is it takes good things and it kills us. It takes good commands from God. It takes good desires in our heart. And then it uses it against us to kill us. In this case, you've got the picture of sin crouching. Meaning sin is like a lion waiting in the bushes. Just waiting for the opportunity to pounce on someone and kill them. And the picture here is God comes to Cain and says, You're angry. And that anger is going to lead to something worse. You need to put to death that anger. Otherwise, it's going to kill your brother. And that's what it did. And so God graciously comes to Cain and warns him that sin is like a lion that's out to kill us. And out to kill others, so to speak, through us. And therefore, sin is not ever a small matter because of how it affects us and how it affects other people. And so Paul could say at the beginning of verse 12, we are under obligation. What does that mean? If you read back through Romans 5, 6, 7, uh, he says you have a new position before God. Uh, You've been reconciled to God. He secondly, he says, you have a new, um, what does he call it? He calls it a, you're basically you're a new person. He says, you're not the person you used to be. You've been given a new heart. Uh, you're not like Judas anymore. You're like King David. You've been given a new heart. So you have a new position before God. You're a new person. And then finally, you have a new power. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have God in you. And certainly what is impossible for you is not impossible for God. God can put to death that sin. What should Cain have done when God told him sin is crouching at the door and it's waiting to kill you and kill others through you? What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to turn to God and say, have mercy on me and help me. That was the implication of that. The fact that God came to him and said something to him was an invitation. I'm right here. I'm ready to help you. Will you turn to me and ask for help? Or will you just let the lion kill you and kill through you? And so we have in us the Holy Spirit. We have God himself living in us to help us put to death sin. And so... What I'd like to do uh, next Sunday is talk about those three things. Talk about the fact that the way we put to death sin, as it talks about in this, uh, these verses, when it says in verse 13, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, what is that all about? What are the deeds of the body? Well, we'll ho- highlight the fact that the deeds of the body are thought patterns, My mind is going in certain directions and I'm thinking in certain patterns. It's what I say, what comes out of my mouth. It's what I actually do with my body. 
Paul is saying those things need to be dealt with. You think about Cain, there were things going on in his heart that were wrong. But God was saying, you need to address those wrong desires, those wrong attitudes, before they they mesh into wrong thought patterns that result in wrong words and wrong deeds. And so we want to talk about how do we address that? How do we fight that? How do we do what the Bible says we should do? How, How does the Spirit enable us to put to death the deeds of the body? And we'll talk about the need to feed on the right things, to feed on the truth. The truth sets us free. What enslaves us is lies. We need to fix our hope on God. We need to pray and turn to God, just like Cain should have looked to God and said, God, have mercy on me and deliver me from what is in me. It's the same thing we're supposed to do. We're to turn to God and say, God, deliver me from what is in me. That's why Paul could say the same thing. And then finally, we're to actually say no. Paul could say in Romans 6 that we're not to let sin reign. What does that mean? We're not to let sin reign. That's what it means. It means that we're to say, no, I'm not going to say that. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to continue down this path of thinking. I'm going to say, no. Now, it takes the Holy Spirit to enable us to have anything behind that. But we have to understand that there is something we are to do that is actually an exercise of faith. And it's an exercise of faith through which the Holy Spirit enables us to put to death the sin in our lives rather than just being pushed to and fro. We're just like, we're just like a little boat on the water. We're just being carried along by our, our thinking and our feelings, carried along by, by what people say and what people do. And the Bible says, don't let yourself just be carried along by those things. Fight for your happiness. Because as you fight for your happiness, you'll be fighting for other people's happiness. You'll be fighting for the happiness of your spouse as you fight for your own happiness. You'll be fighting for the happiness of your children when you fight for your own happiness. You'll be fighting for the happiness of the people at work when you fight for your own happiness. Because that's how God designed it. And so the issue of sin is very much about whether or not I'm going to truly pursue my happiness in God or not and whether or not I will truly love God and love others. And so it's my desire, as as Spurgeon said, is to gladly preach to you happiness, happiness in God, and that all of us, all of us, all of us are like what Paul describes in Romans 7. We're still fighting sin. We, We still fail. That doesn't mean we can't still grow and we can't have greater happiness in God. And that's my heart's desire for you and for myself as well. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We just pray that you'd help us as we think through these things again. We pray that as we wrap up this series on happiness, that you would help us to see that Your calls to us to pursue holiness are very much your calls to pursue happiness for ourselves and for those around us. Happiness in you, because that's the only true lasting kind of happiness.
And so please, Father, encourage us, help us, grant us grace to receive your word and more and more to live in light of it. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.